All right, good morning. Welcome back. Good morning. <laughs> You're alive. I'm alive. I was sorry to miss last week. I was detained. But I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to be back. I appreciate those of you who prayed for me. I had an unexpected hospitalization that, uh, I don't know, I guess there's certain parts of your body you don't need anymore at, at this age, and some, that was removed. So I feel better, and I thank you for your comments of concern and prayers for me, and uh, it's great to be here. I missed last week. I really appreciate John's speaking. Uh, I was looking forward to that passage. Uh, it's a beautiful passage in chapter 19. Today we're in chapter 20. So if you have your Bible, let's open together to Revelation chapter 20. We're coming down to the end, really uh, three messages after today, and we'll be done with the book of Revelation. And I love that it is aligning together that we're going to celebrate the Lord's second coming around the time that we celebrate Christmas, his first coming. The two advents of Jesus are going to align together, and I pray it will lead us to worship and to think about him. A couple of the names of Jesus that emerge from chapter 19 is that Jesus is called there the faithful and true, the Word of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Those are the names in chapter 19 that focus in about Jesus. And I want to remind you that it is the book of Revelation, not Revelations, it is the revelation of, can you finish it? Jesus Christ. It's revealing him. He is the faithful and true, the word of God, the king of kings, the Lord of lords. It is him, his work and his um, accomplishment on the cross, his coming again to make all things right. And we come today to chapter... Um, 20. At the end of chapter 19, there is a battle. In the middle of chapter 20, there's a battle. And we come to a place in our study in the book of Revelation where all of the things that we've talked about are sort of coming down to, well, how do they all fit together? And it's, um, it's one of the things I hope we'll be able to clarify a little bit for you today. Let's begin by reading chapter 20. And verse 1. Chapter 20, verse 1. John turns, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil, or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations any more until the thousand years were ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. Okay. How many of you are here for the first time today? Raise your hand. Anybody? Oh, bless you. You're not here. For, oh, a couple of you. Okay. So you got it, 14 weeks you got to go back and listen to before we get, get to here. Um, but there's, a, there's this character called the dragon, and uh, this is a conflict between God and his archenemy, the devil, Satan, the deceiver. 
We've talked about beasts. We've talked about false prophets. We've talked about um, all of their work through the empire of Babylon to lead God's people astray. And now we're coming down to the final judgment where God is going to make this right. When you come to chapter 20, you begin to hear six times this this amount of years, 1,000 years. When John begins, verse 1, and I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, that has been a marker through the book of Revelation that John is seeing something else. When an angel comes down, often it is a reference to something that has occurred beforehand. But the way in which you take the angel coming down now can either be a look back Or it can be, as some interpret it, as a sequential development, a linear procession of what happened next. It doesn't say what happened next. It indicates what John saw next, that an angel came down and he sees the dragon. One of the things I would just ask you to observe is that an angel comes down and seizes the dragon and puts him in in the abyss. Just think about that for a moment. That's a powerful dragon. That's a powerful angel. Be able to just do that. Verse 3, 4, excuse me. And I saw thrones which were seated, on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony about Jesus, because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or its image And had not received the mark on their forehead or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So an angel comes down, seizes the dragon, throws him in the abyss. He is there for a thousand years. Thrones on which authority is given. And the souls of those who have not taken the mark of the beast who were beheaded or martyred for their love for Jesus and because they held fast to the word of God, come to life and reign with Jesus for this period of time, now mentioned three times a thousand years. Verse 5, And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. That is the resurrection of those alive with Jesus after the grave. Blessed and holy are those who share in the first resurrection. The second death, eternal death, has no power over them. They will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him sixth time for a thousand years. This first resurrection of all the saints who have died to reign with Christ for a thousand years. As I mentioned to you six times, it is spoken in these opening six verses, a thousand years. So the Latin word for a thousand years is the word 
millennium. Millennium. And this is the only place in the Bible that speaks of Jesus reigning for a thousand years, a millennium of years spent here. Now, we would say that probably more ink and paper have been deployed on establishing what the millennium kingdom is here in these pages. Whole systems of biblical theology have been put together to try to understand what is this thousand years and how does it fit together? How is it constructed? When we began... On week one, one of the things that I said that we would do here is we would try to stay up high and look at the big themes and we would eschew charts. My hospitalization last week diminished my resolve and this morning I'm going to show you a chart Uh, because it helps to understand how to think about Um, the way in which good theologians have thought about these six verses and how they fit into the the unfolding and the conclusion of Revelation. So I'm going to show you charts. They are not the primary issue of our study in the book of Revelation. May I ask you, who is the primary focus of our study in the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. And we're going to try to summarize a a little bit about the way in which it can be conceived these thousand years and the way it has been. And uh, you may want to take your camera out and take a picture and see it, but let me begin this way. There are three major views of understanding the millennium period, and they are called pre-millennialism, post millennialism, and ah-millennialism. This is going to enrich your life beyond what you could ever imagine. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but here's the first, premillennialism. In the chart of premillennialism, as tried to be understood by many theologians, um, this chart comes from Daryl Johnson, as well as some of the... Um, bullets that will help us understand some of the primary distinctions of this understanding or scheme or layout of the millennial 1,000-year period. It is called premillennialism because Jesus comes again pre, prior to, before the 1,000-year millennial kingdom. At his return... Jesus strips Satan of all of his power. The Christian dead are resurrected. Jesus sets up the kingdom of saints on the earth, and they will rule for a thousand years with Christ. In most premillennial schemes of understanding eschatology, the thousand-year period is a literal period of time, literal 1,000 years. Years. At the end of this period, Satan will be released to attempt one more overthrow of Jesus and his kingdom. He is destroyed and thrown into the lake of fire. 
The rest of humanity is then resurrected and brought before the throne of judgment, which is recorded here in this chapter, and the unrepentant are thrown into the lake of fire, and then comes the glorious new creation. This is a scheme of premillennialism. For those of you who are really geeky, dispensational premillennialism has two additional features that are described in their scheme called the rapture of the church, which takes place prior to the second coming. It is not a concept that is described in the book of Revelation, but many see it to be taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and a couple other places, and then the seven-year tribulation in a dispensational premillennial view is a literal seven-year period prior to a literal 1,000-year reign. Are there any questions? <laughs> you see that? Okay, so there are a number of people who hold this view. The second view is postmillennialism, and by its understanding post-millennialism. Jesus comes again post after the millennial kingdom. In this view, there is one final coming of Jesus after the 1,000 years of period, and before Jesus comes, there is a 1,000 years which may or may not exactly be a literal 1,000-year period, but in this 1,000-year period, the gospel is proclaimed, and it saturates the whole world, and the church is seen to triumph and influence and transform the world by the power of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. In this view, Jesus' reign begins with his ascension into heaven after his resurrection, and it continues today by the preaching of the gospel and the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his church. Matthew chapter 13 that describes the leaven that goes out and multiplies or the mustard seed which begins very small and then fills the whole earth is a scriptural idea or motif that the kingdom starts small, but it eventually fills the whole earth in this thousand-year period. And after this period, evil will get one more final try to destroy the work of the kingdom, but after that, Jesus returns, and then we enter the final new creation. Post-millennialism. The gospel is important and it changed the world. There are, there are a number of people who believe that that's what the Bible is teaching. And the last, how you doing? You doing okay? Is amillennialism. And ah is uh, simply a prefix that's put on to indicate negation or there is no literal millennium. Jesus is now reigning and the thousand years are a symbol for the church age period. And this view stresses that there's really only one future coming of Jesus, and when he comes, that is the end. Jesus begins his reign at his first coming, and his kingdom is happening now, and the kingdom is primarily spiritual or internal, and Satan was defeated and bound at Jesus' first coming, 
Jesus spoke the words, going to the cross, now the king, the, the ruler of this world has been cast out, and all millennials believe that in some way Satan was bound then, and just before Jesus returns, Satan will be released for one final attempt at deception to overthrow the period of Jesus' rule now, and then Jesus returns and the glorious new creation begins. There you have it. Let's close in prayer. No, let's not. Okay, these three views are held by people who love Jesus, love the Bible, and look at the Bible and earnestly try to hold it all together. Do you know the longest view is our millennialism? St. Augustine held that. John Calvin held that. John MacArthur is dispensational premillennialism. John MacArthur, John Calvin. You understand there are people who hold these views and say, I, I think this is the best way to hold it all together. There, um, there's one thing for sure. There will not be any gloating in heaven when we get there and say, yes, it was pre-mill or post-mill or am-mill. Whoever, wherever the, the intramural understanding of interpreting what is the way to understand these thousand years precisely will never be a cause for debate once it's there. In fact, one pastor said the good news is that all Christians are going to enjoy fully everything won for us by our blessed Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, no matter what our position on the millennium is right now. It's going to happen, and there's a few things that I want to underscore um, that are true of all of the positions and should be true in all of our hearts. And finally, this would be the place that we've waited 15 weeks to insert that there is another view called pan-millennialism. You've heard that, right? It's all going to pan out at the end. And uh, that's, that's possible. What, what we know is that Christ is going to establish his kingdom. This debate about the precise nature of the millennium and this thousand years found here in Revelation only, and the Lord's return has led our own denomination to sort of clarify the way we think about the end of the age with a, a precise and simple statement that goes like this. We believe in the personal and bodily and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy and is our blessed hope and motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. At one point, the statement of the Evangelical Free Church said premillennial, and because there was such an intramural debate about where it was and how to read some of the book of Revelation, it was simply said, this is what we know for sure. Christ is coming back personally. He's going to come back. 
Remember when he ascended into heaven, this same Jesus who you see going to heaven shall come again in the same way as you see him go. He's coming again. He's going to come bodily. He's really going to return in the same way that he was here bodily in his first coming. He's going to come bodily and it's going to be glorious. He will not come in humble fashion. He will come in glorious kingly fashion because he is the king of all the universe. He will come again. When will it happen? He's coming again. We're not sure when it is. What are the implications that he is coming again? Well, because we don't know, and it could happen today, we should be constantly expectant. We have said over all the weeks that we've been together, probably every generation of Christians from the time of Jesus' resurrection and ascension into heaven have thought that Jesus could come at any time. I think the apostles probably thought that Jesus would return in their lifetime. Most believers throughout history have thought, he's got to come in my lifetime. And we're here today in 2023, and if you're not watching the news thinking to yourself, Jesus could come at any time because all of the events of the world seem like they are, they are moving to constant chaos. Christ, come and deliver us. We live in a day that we think the Lord could come at any time, so we are expectant of that. And we're hopeful of that because we know what's going to happen when he does come again. We shall be with him and we shall be like him. And it motivates us to live a life that's godly knowing that we don't want the Lord to come and for us to have ourselves unprepared, living in sin, away from God, being rebellious in our heart, knowing that Christ could come. We want to be right with him. The way we've read it in Revelation, we want to be dressed and ready to see the bridegroom, prepared to see him, not messing around, but he could come. And what is our life for until he comes? Why didn't he just take us into heaven? Because there is a mission to accomplish. And some of these views of the millennium understand the great ministry of the gospel being proclaimed in all the world, which is exactly what Jesus told his disciples as the final mission for the church until he comes again, go into all the world, preach the gospel, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teach them to observe all that I've commanded. There is a mission that this church needs to be awake about that the world needs to hear the good news before he comes and it's too late. Now there's a couple things that I want to underscore for all of us today because all of these views do agree on a number of things. The substance is very similar to all of them. And that is that, number one, um, Jesus is already the king. He's already the king. We say he's coming as king. No, he's already king. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. When Jesus left the earth, he said, all authority is given to me in heaven and on earth. Think about what that means. When Jesus left his disciples, all authority is mine in heaven on the earth. So let's think about what's going on in the world today in Ukraine and Israel and Africa and China. Who's in charge? All authority is given to Jesus in all the world. And these puppet kings do their things, but he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. 
Revelation 1.5 says. We know that already to be the case. When the apostles began to preach in Acts chapter 2, verse 36, they said, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus Christ, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you've crucified. He's already the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Ephesians chapter 1 says, God raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. Jesus is above every name of every human ruler that you can think of today who seems the most powerful and the most demonic. Jesus is more powerful than them. Good place to say amen. That's real. So you're here today, and if you're worried about the way the world is moving and going, what you know about what Revelation says, that he rules as king already. Number two, all of the views understand that Jesus Christ is coming again. This has been our theme throughout, but Christ is coming back again. He's going to come bodily. He's going to step on this earth. He's going to come in the same way that he left here. He's coming again. Number three, all of the views agree that evil will be vanquished and judgment will be carried out. All of chapter 4 through 18 have pointed to, and now including 19 and 20 a little bit, that Jesus is going to make things right. He's going to settle things and he's going to destroy evil. He's going to bind and punish and capture and send to the lake of fire the devil and the beast and all who oppose him and reject him and he's going to destroy the final enemy, which is death itself. That is going to happen. Now, what's the implication for that? If you believe that God is going to make things right, could I just draw in how you could live tomorrow for people that you're an enemy with? It is in Romans chapter 12 that the Apostle Paul says, do not repay evil to evil. Someone does something wrong to you, what is the Christian response? To get even? No, do not repay evil for evil. Why? Because vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Like God's got it. And he is going to restore and he is going to vanquish all evil and every enemy. And if there's one final thing that I would say, it is Jesus is king, he's coming again, he's going to vanquish evil, and the best is yet to come for us. And these are in the weeks ahead that we're going to come to. All right, that, that's what I'm going to do for you in the opening verses of the millennial references of the opening of the chapter. Now there's another great event that happens at the end of chapter 20. And it begins in verse 11, and I want to take a moment to look at that, where when Christ comes, he's going to uh, bind and restrict the activity of Satan. And in 
chapter 20, verse 11, there is a great white throne. And him who, I saw him who sat upon it. And the earth and the heavens fled from his presence. And there was no place for them. Remember, this is the revelation. John keeps seeing these visions as if he turns and says, oh, here's another thing I see. I see a throne in heaven. It's great. It's, it's massive. It's white and pure and, and righteous. And I see him who was seated on it. And because of him who was seated on it, the entire earth and the heavens fled away. This perhaps is a reference to the deconstruction of the world as we know it at this judgment period because the earth is under the curse. The earth is broken. This perhaps is God's decreation before the new creation that we're going to see. But here is this throne in heaven. We've heard a lot about thrones in the book of Revelation and throughout the New Testament. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30 and 31, we read that the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. Everybody with me? God has fixed a day when he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed, and of this he has given assurance by raising him from the dead. The certainty of a day of judgment by Jesus Christ who sits on the throne of God is that God already brought Christ into the world, allowed him to be crucified, raised him from the dead. The day of judgment is coming. Revelation chapter 1 verse 11 says there's a throne there. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Another book was opened, which is the book of life. So there are books, plural, circle that, and there is a book, singular, the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what they had done recorded in the books. And the sea, verse 13, gave up their dead who were in there, and, the, the, and death and Hades gave up their dead who were in them. And... Underline, each person was judged according to what they had done. And death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. What's going on here? This is after the millennial, the binding of Satan. There is a throne that John sees whether sequentially or happening sometime around the same time, there is Christ on the throne. It is God and Christ together, but it's, it's Christ who has authority to judge, and every person is brought before him. I think probably the reference in this passage is to the, those who have died without Christ who are brought before this judgment. The sea gives up their dead. Romans chapter 2 says he will render according to each person what they have done. So everyone's going to come and the books are going to be open. Seems to indicate that there's a book on the life of every person. Everything about our life is known to God. And we're going to be judged. They're going to be judged. If, it's this, if this part of the judgment is only for those without Christ, every deed done will be opened up to God. And... They'll be judged according to what they had done. Same thing in verse 12, according to what they had done. 
You say, well, I thought we were saved by grace. Yeah, we are. But the deeds of a person's life are actually the mirror reflection of the interior belief and value system. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. By your fruits you will know them, Jesus said. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Deeds matter because they are a reflection of our character and our true allegiance and our internal belief system and the values of our life and the affections of our life. And so it does seem clear here that what's going to happen is there'll be some judgment of all the works. And then there's another book. Before I go there, let me just say that if this particular judgment is only for unbelievers, which I think it probably is, it doesn't mean that believers in Christ do not also experience the evaluation of their life's conduct. The Apostle Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 5, or excuse me, verse 5 and verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. There will be some sense in which we will stand before God and give an account of our lives to him. And the books are going to be open. Those who are without Christ will be without hope and commissioned to eternal judgment for rejecting him. But there is a second book. And it's this book that I want to close our time together this morning. I just mentioned to you, it matters how you live your life. Not because by your works you'll be saved, but because if you are saved in Christ, how you live your life reflects the genuine conversion of your life. Now verse 15 in Revelation 20 says, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. This is a fierce, frightening conclusion to chapter 20. And the vision John sees is meant to be startling. You must have your name written in the book of life to escape wrath. Would you like to know how? It's important to know how. You can't write it there. In Revelation chapter 13, we're told that the book of life is the Lamb's book of life. It belongs to Jesus. The Lamb's book of life has the names of those who are with the Lamb, hidden in the Lamb. The deeds under which those in the Lamb's book of life stand are the deeds of Jesus. He came, he lived, he died, he suffered, he forgave, he cleansed, he gives eternal life, he was buried, he rose again, he ascended into heaven triumphant, and all who have the Lamb of God have life and are in the book of life, and God puts our name there. No amount of deeds will get your name in the Lamb's book of life 
The Lamb's book of life is the mercy and grace of God. And in the end, being in the Lamb's book of life is rooted here. Are you worried whether your name is in the Lamb's book of life? Could I tell you, if you're worried about whether your name is in the Lamb's book of life, there's a pretty good shot it's in there because you care. The, the judgment that comes in these terrible passages we just read are people who just um, unrepentantly rejected the truth of God and hated the truth and loved unrighteousness. And if you love Christ and you love righteousness and you cling to what he has done, it is his deeds that lead you to eternal life. I can't stop this morning's message without saying to you, there is a prescription for being in the Lamb's book of life. It's believing that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. He is the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 put it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, everybody, you will be saved. Your name will be written down. Not by what you do, but by what he did. For with the heart, a human being believes in Jesus and is justified, declared righteous. And with the mouth, you confess, Lord, I need you. I ask you for forgiveness, and you're saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. The judgment fell to Jesus, so it wouldn't fall to us. Everybody said, but you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or this day of judgment is ahead. Now do you see why urgent mission in the church of proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is so urgent for today? People must know that Christ paid it all. So is it true of you? I'm going to close in prayer. Are you sure that Jesus is your Savior? Is your name written down to the best of your knowledge like I trust Jesus? I'm with him. My name in his book. Lord, I trust in you alone. Let me lead us in prayer and then we'll pray. Would you just call upon the name of the Lord where you are? Lord Jesus, save me. Lord, I trust in you. I know you're coming. I know you're the judge. You're the king. Maybe you've not been living as if Jesus was the king. You're the king. You're the one, the captain of your own life. Maybe today is the day that you would say, Lord, I want you to be the Lord of my life. I want you to be the savior from my sins. I call on you to save me and and give me eternal life. Lord, let your Holy Spirit open the hearts of those who came to church with a hard heart. Let your precious Spirit call repentance to those who have been living in sin and rebellion against the Lord. Lord, 
let your Holy Spirit give confidence in the final work of Jesus to those who doubt. To all of us, give us a vision of Jesus that you have come into the world to give eternal life and that you are coming again to this world as the King and the Judge and the Creator of all things new for all of eternity. Oh, come, Lord Jesus, even now to our hearts. We worship you. We think about you. May our life in this week follow you, we say in Jesus' name. And everybody said.